You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Willie Cook is known for being the bull-catching, helicopter-flying Kiwi from the ABC TV series Outback Ringer. He first came on the podcast in 2022, when he shared the incredible story of how the 2008 global financial crisis saw his family lose absolutely everything they had, resulting in moving to Australia for a fresh start. I caught up with Willie in late 2023 and we yarned for so long that I had to split our chat into two parts. In this part, Willie gives us a lesson on catching wild bulls and water buffalo, the logistics, the technique and the psychology involved. In part two, Willie shares stories from his time being filmed for the television series Outback Ringer. He also speaks candidly about the challenges he faced in 2023 and what he's got planned for 2024. To start our conversation, I asked him to tell me about the first bull he ever caught. Catching my first ever bull. I'll never forget it. We'd had a pretty long day catching as it was, and we'd finished. We'd parked up. We we're way down on Bohemia's bottom boundary, right on the Lemon National Park there. And we've got one of my favorite areas called Scrub Bull Flat. And we always, that was about the second day was where we'd end up at Scrub Bull Flat. We'd parked all the gear up. We'd just caught 17 bulls on this one flat, landed the helicopter, finished yeah, and then we take a Toyota back home for that night. And anyway, and we're leaving the flat. Bulls are all tied up. Just got onto the road and I'm driving along and I look out the window and I've got all the fellas in the motor car with me and um, here's a bull just just ambling along, walking through all the other ones that had been caught. So I was like, oh, well, we better go back and grab him. And um, the guys were buggered. And they are like, no, bugger it, Willie, you can leave it. And I said, right, well, I'll catch him then. And so I just went back and um, jumped in the buggy or jumped in the bull catcher, idled out into the flat, and he saw me and then pinned it for the creek. And I was lucky. I had a creek there, so I knew he naturally wanted to run straight there. And, yeah, it was probably a bit of a fluke, really, but I just ripped alongside him and, um, yeah, managed to put an arm over him and then turned back to the left and tied him up with the other 17 that were were there and um, job done, really. But that, I suppose, goes, you know, it's my nature, you know, I don't like, you know, leaving them there. Like if they're there, you got to get got to get them caught. And if you still got daylight there, then yeah, we keep going. But we'd we'd sort of work that whole area and thought we had them all. And um, yeah, but sure enough, and that was the the one time, you know, because generally I have to do all the flying stuff. You know, I've got had very very good bull catcher drivers, so it's not often I got to jump in the in the bull catcher as I spent most of my time in the air. But yeah, that was the first. He was a great big short horn bull, one downturn horn. It's a memory, you know, and you can't describe the, um, I suppose the adrenaline and, um, you know, and the rush and thrill of the whole chase, but it's just something that's always stayed with me. And yeah, and I, I just love doing it. It's, yeah, best job in the world. So when you started that day, you didn't think you'd be ending it in a bull catcher. You thought you'd just be in the machine flying around, guiding the guys to the bulls. And then next minute, you're you're there right up alongside, you know, you've got probably dust in your face and you can smell the sweat on him and he's you were right there. It's got to be quite different being right up on their shoulder versus however many feet high in the air. Well, there, there's a lot going on. There's a hell of a lot going on. And it's, you know, it's not just arming the bull. It's learning how to read your country, work as a team with the other bull catcher, work with your helicopter pilot, like learning the flats. You know, and, and yeah, and I mean, the easiest part of it really is catching the bull. It's positioning yourself, your animal, you know, coordinating the whole lot. So it just all comes together. And, um, and sometimes, you know, there, there's very, um, minimal country where you can actually catch them on. So, 
you know, a lot of it is predetermined that you're going to catch them on that flat and you might have, you know, 60, 70 metres to go and um, before you reach it. And you're just sitting there in the anticipation, like you're just waiting to push that throttle down. Yeah, so, you know, there's there's a lot of excitement built up into it. And, you know, and I've, I've caught quite a few bulls now. And, um, you know, it's still, you know, you've got the biggest smile on your face and I just, I just love doing it. Yeah, it's just, it's a hell of a challenge and, I think the big thing is it's not just the bull catcher driver, as I was saying, it's the whole it's the whole collective group of us that combine together to then, you know, get, you know, from the helicopter pilot positioning the animal to your hazer being in the right position to being on the flat you've selected to then right down to it to arming the bull and knowing which tree you're going to then tie him to to make it easy for the truck to come and pick him up. So there's lots and lots of um, techniques and strategies going into it along, you know, along with getting the job done properly. Sounds like a bit of a puzzle that like everyone's their own piece and you've <laughs> got to put all the pieces together to see yep. the final picture to get Absolutely. that result. Yep. And as the pilot, you see it all from the air. Um, I know exactly how it should happen, how it will happen and where it's going to happen. And then explaining that to the boys and, and you know, and my fellas were bloody good and they knew the flats, um, knew the topography, knew the country and when you see it all come together and you're just sitting in the machine, you know, and you're in the right position, bull's running good and the guys come in and grab them. Um, my favourite one is when you run two and the first bull catcher hazes for the first one and then the second bull catcher then grabs them like, you know, within a, you know, two or three seconds from the first arm swinging and then bang, I'm in position and the second arm's then swinging. And, um, and when you got them both and then, you know, then you're, you pedal turn and gone and you've gone going to get the next two. So, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it's like poetry in motion when it does happen. It's bloody fantastic. Well, timing must be everything. So it's one thing to be up on its shoulder and you're getting up there. And like you said, poetry in motion, you need that timing. What is there like a delay when you, I don't know, do you press a button? For anyone who hasn't seen it, I guess we're looking at like a kind of short wheelbase Land Cruiser with an open, like a little, uh, what do you call it, convertible yeah. You know, thing, no roof. And they've got like this big kind of arm on the side. Like it's almost like you're putting your arm up around and giving him like a headlock. Yeah, exactly. Is, it, is there a button? Like, is it a button you press and is there a delay? Cause imagine if you were like right there and then you press the button and like, you know, when you wait for like an electric gate to open sometimes yeah. and it's really slow. Yeah. The, there's no delay. I, I drive, I have my left hand on the steering wheel and my right hand on the ratchet. And that's where the button is. So, yeah, as soon as you push that button, it's just an electric pulse through to the hydraulic pump, which activates the arm. And, yeah, and our arms, are they're very quick. You know, they've got a lot of power behind them too, So and they swing very fast. So, yeah, and but that's all part of it. I mean, every bull catch is different. We've tried to have all our set up reasonably similar, but all bull catches are, you know, fingerprint, they're all slightly different one way, shape, or form. But, yeah, as far as the arm's going, they're, they're very quick, very fast. And, and also it's, you know, you, you don't catch every single one, like, some of them, you know, you just, it's like getting your fingertips to the end of the arm and he's just bending off you and say the haze has been blocked by a tree or something. So he's had to go a bit wider. So it's learning to wait and be patient, let him come back in. Or if you can see the bull's going to run on the inside of a tree and that, that's, you know, and you can, you can tell, you can see, oh, he is going to run on the inside. So you set yourself up and that might be, you know, 10 or 12 meters away. And as he's just starting to duck into the left, that's when you shimmy over and, put an arm over him and then sometimes as you say he you do miss he might suddenly hit the anchors or generally doesn't happen too often but you know we we do miss and um so it's learning then to you've swung the arm you've missed it but then getting it and then push the button again to get it reset and so yeah there's a lot going on in a short space of time and and in a short amount of distance to catch them too normally so as a pilot I get pretty cranky when um someone misses or you know, I'm sort of shaking my head and biting. I've learned to bite my lip a bit more now rather than actually ear my thoughts over the two-way. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all getting better. But I, I've been lucky. I've had some pretty fantastic bull catcher drivers, eh? So, um, and now, you know, like Lizzie, she, she drives well and she's she's one of the best, you know, and I work with her pretty well. She's not afraid to stand up. If she misses one, sometimes it seems to be my fault that I haven't put her in the right position. But <laughs> always, of always course. Always my fault, but shit, she's good. And um, she's just got amazing timing and she knows cattle pretty bloody well. And I suppose with all the work she does on horseback and that too. So it's really easy catching bulls with Liz. And yeah, she knows where the creeks are. She knows which way they're going to run. And quite often, you know, we don't even need to talk, you know, we'll, um, it's really good. And yeah, she's, she's bloody fun to catch with. 
So remembering that this was the first bull you'd ever caught. So you're getting up on his shoulder, you've you've hit the button on the ratchet, got the arm wrapped around and got all that timing right. All right, he's headlocked in this metal arm. Now you have to get out and tie him up. How do you do that? I feel like the first time I would do that, I would want, I don't know, like a fake bull and I'd want someone to like walk me through it step by step. That's just the way I work. I'd be packing myself. I'd probably get myself killed, to be honest. No, you'd be right. Look, it's it's one of those things. Um, you know, your mind, your, your mind, you know, you're focused on what you've got to do. The, the first thing after you've caught it is safety for the animal and yourself. Um, so as, as we've armed him, we do a nice sort of angle to the left, um, sort of turn the steering wheel, well, depending on where your tree is, but generally 20, 30 degrees to the left. And that just puts him on a left-hand lead and just kicks his feet out to the side so there's no, no, you know, danger of running over a front foot or something like that. So you're protecting the animal and, um, and then you come into the tree and I just normally just park just so his forehead's just on the bark of the tree to protect everyone including the bull, we just take that little tip, sort of about three in- two to three inches, depending on the type of bull and what, what his horn structure's like, just what we call, you know, tipping them. So that just puts a square edge. We're trying to aim for about a 50-cent coin. Um, so then he's lost those sharp stabbers, so you feel a lot more confidence. That's the first thing you do. Second thing is the rope, just a rope straight round his, um, straight round his horns, and then we tie him short, as short as we can, um, to the tree, yeah, with a bowline knot, and then reverse backwards with him in the arm until the rope's tight, and then we just release the arm, and then that's it. The bull's on the tree, and that then we just we try and give them six, you know, six to eight hours on the tree, just to you know they learn how to respond from you know they're being tied up, and they've they've sort of I suppose um, succumbed to what's happened, and they're a lot more relaxed and they've had a breather and a blow and they're a, they're a lot easier to handle after that yeah so that you know we never ever catch bulls and put them straight on the truck it's just too much for them and um, so it's just easier tie them up put them on the tree and just carry on with your day and generally how we roll is the ones that we catch in the morning we pick up at night and take them home the ones we catch at night we pick up the following morning and it just gives them all time to adjust to what's happened and, and relax a lot more. I've got to ask, me being me, how do they go being tied up for that long, I guess, not having access to water? I guess in saying that cattle do get curfewed off water for various reasons um, and that certainly they can go longer without access to water, but is it just about time, like, you know, the time of year you're doing it or how hard you're running them? Yeah, or? definitely the time of year and depending on where you're running. Like, I mean, I don't like running bulls too far and that's that's probably the big thing for me. Yeah, we like catching them quick. Yeah, I never run bulls, you know, too far. I more shift bull catchers um, and vehicles over to where the animals are and it's just a short run out into a flat and put them on there. So there hasn't really been a lot of a stress on the animal. It's all happened pretty quickly for them. And I, I think, um, yeah, the... The benefits of doing that are a lot easier for the animal, you know. And nine times out of ten, a lot, of, especially the ones you've caught in the afternoon, you know, we don't generally are not catching all day. Um, we're catching last thing in the afternoon. So the bulls have all watered up. You know, they've been cruising around in creek beds and things like that and under shade all afternoon, and then they're just poking out. And we have that sort of magic hour and a half, two hours before dark where um, the animals generally are. I mean, you can bang away flying all day, but if you just do your good run in the morning and when it starts getting hot and then your good run in the afternoon, generally you've caught more bulls than if you were just banging away all day. Right, see, there you go. I've learned something new. I thought it would be something you do all day. So there you go. No, well, we don't really like catching around that sort of lunchtime to 3 o'clock. 3.30 is normally the time when we get organised to go. Trucks will start leaving, heading to the flats that we're going to go on and bull catchers will go. And then so I'm generally on the flat about 4.30 ready to arm the – and I yeah, expect everyone to be ready by 4.30 is when we normally start. So, I mean, you know, if we've got beautiful overcast days and, you know, on the shoulders of the season or whatever, yeah, you can you can catch all day if the animals are out. But generally, um, and especially in the later years, you know, everyone's been bull catching themselves and the animals are a lot more scarce. They're not as abundant as they used to be when I first arrived. So you've got to use your timing and your techniques a lot more to actually hoodwink a lot of these big fellas. 
Uh, that's not an issue for me. I mean, at the end of the day, the bulls, you know, generally it's eight hours by the time they've been caught to being there in the yard with hay and water. So, I mean, you don't want to cart bulls full anyway. And, you know, and they, they can be very fizzy. You know, a lot's happened. You think one minute you're standing on a flat or standing on a flat eating grass and within, if we were loading them straight on the truck, within two or three minutes they've been tipped in a, been put onto a body truck with other animals and confined space. Like it's, it's no good. It's not good. And that's when I feel you start losing animals. So look, I mean, everyone's different and everyone's got their own techniques, but this is what we do and this is what works. So we stick with it. Sounds like it's more about being strategic with your technique rather than having like brute physical strength. Obviously you need yeah. some amount of strength in, yeah. in these kind of physical jobs, but it's um, more about, I, I mean, that's, well, the biggest, the biggest thing is animal welfare. Yeah, yeah, and um, welfare is staff. So this is the easiest way to do it, and um, the less stress on everyone involved. I mean, don't worry, I've been there in bad situations, like picking up bulls at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, and gear breaking down. And you know, sometimes you've just got to do it, unfortunately. But yeah, when you know, a good day's bull catching for us is if we can go and catch our twenty, thirty. And we do our 15 in the morning, which is our body truck, and our 15 in the afternoon, and that's us. So, you know, if, if we can keep continuing along that, it's good. And But as I say earlier, you know, the, the bulls are getting, over the last four or five years, well, we've had such high prices. Like, every man and his dog's out there chasing them. And, yeah, you know, I used to work on one drum of Avgas that I had for the 22. I'd get 30 bulls out. I'd turn that drum of Avgas into 30 bulls. Now... I'm turning that into 10 to 15. So it's getting harder. After you'd got that first bull, being down on the ground, obviously before that you'd been catching, but you'd always been in the air. Did you find it hard to get back in the chopper? Did, were you, were you, did you kind of get like this rush and you're like, no, I want to be on the ground from now on? Or were you quite happy to get back up in the sky and continue on from there? Mate, well, it was the, the thing was is that, my three main bull catchers when I first started off who worked for Lizzie and I, I mean, we had Patrick Raggett, his cousin Louis Raggett, and Desmond Lanson, who's the TO for Bohemia. The The thing was, I wasn't good enough. There's no way I could outclass any of those three in the arm. I mean, I mean, Patrick's been catching bulls since he was 12. Desmond, you know, he's been a cattle, he's the same age as me, but I mean, he's been on and off cattleman for most of his life. And Desmond's very patient quite often he'd just be hanging back off a ball and you'd be like right oh get ready let's you know come on liven up but he'd just sit back and then boom, straight in and grab it like he had such a cool nature and could read things so well and louis uh man louis was so fast geez he was quick he's so coordinated um but him and patrick together were a, were a bloody great combination and you know and that was the thing i was good at my job i was in the air and finding them and digging them out and sorting out the flats and you know, it just worked like clockwork. And, yeah, we caught a lot of bulls early part with just five of us, um, three on the ground. And um, Lizzie at that stage was driving the pickup truck and doing that. But, yeah, I mean, I always knew that, yeah, I'd as, you know, as we progressed forward or got more catches or people left or whatever, there'd be opportunities moving forward. But I was more productive in the air, and those guys were so productive on the ground. So it was just it was a great little harmonic team that worked bloody well. Do you get the same adrenaline rush from being in the air? Yeah, well, I suppose I've done it for quite a long time. But, um, yeah, I, I'm one of those helicopter pilots that I can't stand ferrying. I get so bored. If I'm looking at, you know, even a, an hour's ferry, I just about climb up the walls. But I can sit in it for 12 hours a day, you know, doing mustering and doing all the fun stuff. So, And, yeah, definitely, there's a hell of an adrenaline rush doing balls, but also... um. You take a lot of pride in, um, you know, outsmarting them. You know, there are some bloody tough bulls out there and a lot of them have been, you know, they've had wins before. And so, you know, and you use a lot of different techniques. Sometimes, you know, to get bulls where they, you know, you're going to a flat with them and you'll try and put them on a pad that will lead to that flat. And, you know, sometimes it just works beautifully. You put them on that pad and... Away they go. And then when they're going, I just sit back off them. Sometimes I can be a thousand feet in the air and a couple kilometers back from them, um, just watching them. And they're just running and they think that I've left and they're on the right track. So they just keep going. And then just as it's getting to the flat, I'll sort of magpie dive bomb down a bit and, um, come, 
you know, right in behind him. And then, boof, he's on the flat and he's like, ooh, okay, I didn't see that coming. Other bulls will just completely fight you and fight you and run back under the chopper and do that. So a lot of other techniques I've used is like, righto, if you want to go that way, I'll make you go that way. So I'll get him behind him and, you know, and I'll flare above him and, you know, what we call sort of hit him. I'll try and put my rotor wash on him. And then the bull's like going, why is he taking me this way? Hang on. He's, you know, and then you'll, you'll hit him a, f- a few more times with your rotor wash and he's running along good and then just sit back sort of 30, 40 metres off him and, and just going along and the bull's like, hang on. No, this isn't right. And then he goes, he's wanting me to go this way and I am running this way. So the bull will turn quite <laughs> often. And then as he's coming at me, I'll hit him and hit him and hit him and, you know, sort of hit him with a downdraft and, and he runs under me and then I'll, and he thinks he's had a win. He's like, right, I'm on the right path now. But he doesn't realise that I've just snooked him. And he's going the way I want him to. And um, so there's a lot of sort of um, reverse, psychology. reverse psychology with it. And then the bull's like, aha, I've got away now. And then, <laughs> boom, there's a catcher sitting on the flat ready for him. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of fun tricks to it. And, you know, and just learning, it's really hard because, you know, as soon as you arrive and you find a bull, you've got about, a, well, not even a minute to, like, work him out and work out his quirks, what sort of what type he is, what is, you know, habits you think are going to be? Is he going to fight you? You never, ever try and work a bull from like right in front of him. You're always on a sort of 45 or um, there's a few, you know, generally bulls as well. They don't have a lot of bends in them. A good forgiving bull might have five or six bends in him. And after that, he'll ignore you and run under you. So you, it's basically, yeah, you've you've got to work that animal out pretty quickly. And, and first of all, always try and get him... You know, I try and make it easy for them. Like, I don't want to run them through big patches of timber. I don't want to – I want to try and make it easy on them so they don't have any opportunities. Like, you know, if you're running them at, you know, and there's a rocky ridge there, that's hard on their feet. You know, is there a better way I can get him to the catcher that he's not going to argue with me or bail up? Because quite often they might be going really, really well, and then all of a sudden they've come across an obstacle that they think, oh, this might be a little hard, and then it's given them a bit of a mindset that, oh, well, this well i'm just going to go and hide in here and that comes down to you know not wanting to run them too far either but yeah it's, it's been an amazing bloody thing and um yeah and i was very lucky that you know i had frank horse spent quite a lot of time with me um teaching me about bending them and it was yeah i was very thankful for frank yeah he did a lot of flying with me early early part at bohemia and teaching me a lot about it it sounds like you're wanting to catch them through your like through skill rather than through just running them until they're so exhausted that obviously you can you know they're easy to do something with. Like oh, we, you, you still want to catch bulls go. Yeah, so you still yeah. want to catch them while there's a fair amount of I, I don't want to say fight, but like oh, well, you know, a fair amount yeah. of fight or, or energy still in them. Like if yeah, you don't want to get to the point where they're too tired and yeah. If a bull is like tonguing or you know mouth open or anything, and you know especially like on a morning like today, Steph that. You know, we've got here in Adelaide River, I mean, it wouldn't even be an option running. You'd only run them about from here to the, you know, the road out there um, before they started panting. But if if a bull's like that and he's done what I want and I can see that he's struggling a bit, we'll let him go. We won't bother catching him. And that, that becomes a lot more apparent too when you're working with buffalo. Like buffalo have got a very short span where you can take them. And, um, and yeah, so... No, we, as I say, I mean, we can all, we'll catch that ball again sometime. He'll present himself close to a flat and we'll just grab him then rather than trying to bang him away, you know, punching him for a kilometre or something like that, you know, through timber and stuff. And he's going to be exhausted by the time he gets there. No, not really interested in that. So lose the battle, um, win the war. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There's always another day. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about Buffalo, but very quickly before I forget, you said something before about. I know you're saying hitting them, and I know you're not actually physically hitting them, but you said rotor wash, and I uh, should yeah. know what that yeah. is, yeah. but I have no idea. Right, it was just in the helicopter. So, um, I mean, how we move animals in the helicopter is it's not necessarily our presence. Um, well, you know, it's not a visual thing. It's using our noise, using um, other, you know, trees, um, and basically the the downdraft that the helicopter rotors produce that blows on the ground, like you can use that to your advantage a lot. You know, you can set traps, you know, 15 metres ahead of a bull that's jogging along. If Say if there's a little bit of burnt country or a big pile of leaves or something through there, you can come down and hover above that and get all that stirred up. And as the bull's coming towards, it's like, oh, I don't really know if I want to run through that. And he might bend, you know, 30, 40 degrees to the left. 
um, or 30, 40 degrees to the right, wherever you want to take them, you sort of set those traps and put those obstacles in front of them, especially if you've got one that's sort of going over the top of you a bit, well, you know, going underneath you a fair bit and not respecting the helicopter much. Um, so, yeah, you, you try and use what you've got around you. I had one, yeah, one a while ago where I had three bulls under this tree and I could not get them out and kept spinning around over the top of them and putting downdraft on them and that. And there was like a widow maker sticking up at the top of the tree, like a big hard dry bit of the tree. That's um, oh my died. god! Why do they call like yeah. a widow maker for pilots or like no, just no, in no, general? A widow maker. You not know, heard of that? Like in no. tall trees, like if you touch some of those trees, though, a bit of them can snap, come down, oh, spear you in the head. Oh, okay. I was like, yeah. is this gonna make like pilots no, like widows? No, I'm like, because no, no, that'll no. be me. And I don't. Okay. Cool. No, there's a especially you get it in that sort of snappy gum. And um, anyway, there's this one branch right at the top of the tree, and I could not get these bulls out. I could not. I didn't want to land and run in there because I knew that would end bad, and I couldn't get the bull catchers. There was a creek there, and I think the animals knew it. And anyway, I managed just to touch the top of um, the stick with my skid because there was bugger all holding it, so I just tapped it, and the branch broke and fell straight down, and all three of them ran out into the flat. So, you know, you've, you have a few wins like that. So, yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun, and... Um, yeah, but I mean, there's there's always bulls that you can't get, and quite often, I remember there's one at Scrub Bull Flat. Like it took us five years before we were able to lock onto him, and you'd see him every time. But yeah, I just could never get him, and God, you know. And then I know it was hilarious, but we we finally, you know, as I was saying before, a bull will always give you a shot to get him. One day he'll, you'll come around a corner and he'll just present himself, and we actually caught him. And we're all sort of yee-hawing and like we finally got the bastard. And I remember we went to rope him. I, was, I said to the guys, I was like, swing the arm, let him go. He's eluded us for this long. We've got his number. Let him go. And we did. We let him go. And he's still running around there today. So I actually yeah. love that. And I, when you're saying that story, immediately in my head I started getting these like, you know that music when you see a Western and the two guys at the end of the old like town in the 1800s, they kind of stand there and they whip out their pistols and they're like eyeballing each other, the 10 <laughs> gallon hats. I just feel like you'd come out each year and kind of look at this bull and he'd look at you and be like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, yeah. And every year you'd be like, hello, old friend. God. It's nice to see you again. I think he had more hours than I did that bull. Like, yeah, <laughs> he was um, he was pretty cool. Yeah, big orangey bull. And I remember um, he'd been caught obviously before because I remember he had a little bit of damage to one of his horns um so he must have been in an arm or something at some stage but whatever it was he knew the game and yeah he was um pretty keen not to get caught but it just happened that yeah we come around the corner and both there he was and he had nowhere to go and i thought we got you so anyway it's good to give back to the bull catching god so isn't it you gotta <laughs> give one back every now and then and mm. so it sounds like from what you're saying before that buffalo are a little more delicate in terms of catching them which is ironic because i often hear that they've got like such hard skulls that like they're really tough animals but in terms of maybe more like their cardio function and it's kind of like me going for a run right now you can't go very (laughs) far before you pass out yeah no buffalo they're amazing they're amazing creatures and i probably prefer catching buffalo than i do scrub bulls but yeah but look they're a you know then that's their name water buffalo they rely heavily on water so most of the time they are near water. Um, if we've got to run them somewhere and say I've got to cross a flat and it might be seven or eight hundred meters, like I'll start the first lot and I'll just let them drift over the flat at their own pace. But generally, and then I'll put them in that water and I try and have my flats, so especially at Bohemia, we've got it pretty well dialed in now. We've got a lot of water holes that are around the flats we're catching on. So I can, you can, you can get a mob of buffalo and idle them across the flat, put them in that water and they'll stay there. And then I'll just carry on and I'll go and get the next lot and put them in that water and this lot in that water. And you're giving them a spell. And then I go back to the first water hole and I'll dig those ones out and I'll have my bull catchers, sometimes only 80 metres away, 100 metres, 200 metres. And then um, as they come out of the water, my bull catchers are coming in and we run out the ones we want. So they've come out, they've had a big bogey already and they're covered in mud and that. And then, and yeah, and same thing, we pick our trees really well. You've got to have big shade. So we'll arm them. And then, yeah, round to the left, put them on a tree. And then I've got one guy um, in the motor car we call Mad Max, and he's got a water pod on the back. So as the guy's armed it and he's tying it up, the guy comes in with the firefighter and we completely hose them off. Um, you know, give them a good hit of water and then they you can just see they just calm, relax, 
And once they are watered and happy on that tree, they're fine. You don't have to water them again. And we, and generally, we try and give buffalo three to four hours on a tree, and then we'll go pick them up. Um, similar principle, but yeah. And then we, when we truck them back, we find they're just, they're easy. They've got, you know, such a wide foot stance. They don't fall over in the truck or cause any, create any problems or anything. Um, and then take them back to the yards. And then we've got one smaller holding pen. And we just make that into a complete bog. It's about a foot deep in water, mud, the whole lot. And they come straight off the truck and basically swan dive into this water and roll around and, and they're happy. So yeah, I found buffalo a, a lot easier to prepare, um, than scrub bulls. And yeah, if you look after them well and feed them well, they become very quiet, um, very quickly. And, uh, Lizzie does a lot of the work with them in the yards. Um, so once, once they've been in their water pen for, um, we normally give them 36 hours in that one water pen and they're all fed in there and that. And then we open a gate and they can go into the next big pen with all the rest of the buffalo and that's got a water hole in it too. Um, but it's just a making them aware of the steel and the timber and, uh, sorry, steel and the yards and that. And then once they're in that next pen, then we open up all the other gates in the yards and we let them learn how to walk through gates. So when it comes to load them, they're they're happy. They know how to go through a gate. They haven't just been locked in one pen um, and haven't been out of it. They actually go exploring through all the yards. And, yeah, so it works really well, Steph. With bull catching, the name kind of gives it away. You're out there catching bulls. With buffalo, are you only catching bulls there or do you catch, like, cows or young ones? Like, is it just whatever you get or are you looking for a specific type of animal? Depends on the market, but generally, like, we will get a – um, a contract for feeder mickeys and buff bulls. So we found it easier. I can just go through the mobs of buffalo on the helicopter and, and just, just haze the ones out that I want rather than having to disrupt everything and run yards and draft them and knock them around. And quite often too, a lot of those juvenile mickeys are in little groups of their own. They've been kicked out of a, out of a mob of buffalo by a more dominant one and they're about that age then it's sort of that 300 to 350 400 kilos that that's when they're sort of looking for their own herd or that and quite often they mob up so it's it's a lot easier too you know especially at Bahania like sometimes you'll come across mobs of 15 or 20 you know mickeys all together so yeah it makes it easy we can you know we just maybe split it in half put half that mob into a, a gilgai or a little pond area or something and you know, once they've had a bit of a lap round and they put them into that water and they'll stay there and then um, we'll just start running them out from there. And, um, yeah, so it works good. So you're not disrupting the cows and the calves and that um, too much. Yeah, so we've found it pretty good in that respect. I've just remembered that, obviously, the, there's a huge variety of people who listen to this podcast, some in industry who, who might have gone bull catching or worked with cattle and a lot who – would would never have um, done it, or let alone seen it. So I, I guess I've got to ask, why do you catch buffalo and bulls versus could you not just get like a bit of a coacher mob? So, and again, for anybody that's not familiar with that, so, you know, let's say you went and caught um, 10 buffalo and you tied them up overnight. The next morning, they're nice and quiet. Could you not walk them off and then with the helicopter and, and someone else, like just start, you know, adding them in so the mob gets bigger and bigger as you walk along to wherever you're going. Like, do you think that could ever be achievable? Uh, yeah. Well, they're not like cattle, I can tell you. Um, well, same with scrub bulls as well, though, I guess. Or is yeah. it just that they're such mavericks that there's no well, I way? I suppose back in the day, I mean, that's at Bohemia, that's what the Hammer family did. They used to go and do that on horseback, ride out into the middle of nowhere, and they'd start a coach mob from throwing the first one or two bulls, basically, and then start from there. Yeah, that's that's all been done, and um, yeah, and it's great. I've personally never done it with buffalo. We did break in a mob of 150 cows that we processed, and Lizzie and myself and the fellas, we walked, we got them pretty quiet and walked them all around. But I think the big thing is, like, the bull catcher makes it simplistic in the respect that you arm it, um, we can tip them. You know, buffalo are very dangerous, very, very dangerous animal. And they always reckon, like, say, if you're – if you're running along and a buffalo's behind you and you threw and you know threw a mandarin over your shoulder, that buffalo would hit it three times with the tips of his horns. You know, like they know exactly where their horns are, and I don't really want to be in a position or put any of my fellas in a position that yeah, yeah, put them in a danger like that. So 
Um, ball catching is the answer for us. And, um, and the big thing too is once they're on a tree and processed, they're finished. You know, they've got their nils tags in them. They're watered down. That's the start of their journey. And when they come back to the yards, we're not having to manhandle them and, you know, and annoy them. They can actually just get back, go into their swimming pool and relax. And I guess once they do that short period of you, of you doing the chase and catching them, that's it. Their exercise is done for the day because they're on a tree and then later on on a truck. Whereas if you were, I now that I'm thinking of it, I'm like, I guess if you were going to do a coach mob, you'd be walking them all day and going yeah. from point A to point B and then how many times they try and break out of the mob and you yeah. put them back in. It'd probably be a lot more physically demanding on them that way. I mean, we, we do a lot of that theory um, and that philosophy when we're walking cattle. Um, yeah, we add to the mob as we're going and do that sort of stuff but um yeah now buffalo's more of a sort of specialist type thing that they generally only want the mickeys or certain types so it's just easier to go out and you've got the specs of what you need and just find them and run them out to the catcher and no drafting them and they get home or anything like that they can just all relax and yeah get ready for you know slowly start getting them onto pallet and good hay and then shifting them up here to you know these blocks that we've got and then relax here and and then go go from there to the ship. So in our last episode, we kind of covered the story about how you started off in New Zealand and through the GFC, uh, your family lost their their farms uh, and you basically came to Australia to start fresh with, you know, nothing. And you and Lizzie now together have, have got to the point where you've worked hard and you've you've got some country and you've you've got a business and you've really done well for yourselves, like considering where you've started from. And that's all been through bull catching so can you just tell me i guess about because we didn't really go into exactly how you got into it in the last episode so i know you'd come here and you were uh flying for milton jones out at coolabar or an nah as a pilot so how do you go making that leap from being a pilot to stepping out and running your own show well i could see an opportunity that was probably the big thing and i don't get me wrong i loved my time with milton and the nah and you know, still good friends now with them all. And, um, yeah, it was just fantastic. But I saw an opportunity and there was a lot of country around. And throughout my flying for NIH, you know, I was always flying over a different country and I was sort of looking going, who owns that? You know, check there's some animals there. And no one was really doing it then. And I, I could see that, you know, we were starting to move more animals through Indo and Malaysia. And, and I thought, well, I think things are going to kick. So it might be a good opportunity for us to go and, try and find some land and do it so yeah we made the decision and yeah and it was i think i was saying it in my last podcast but yeah we um we yeah we went back to new zealand we regrouped back at lizzie's parent station um we sold everything that we could think of or have to put some money in the bank and we bought that helicopter and we had some help from you know mum and dad and lizzie's parents and we shipped the helicopter to Australia. We had two bull catches being made, pickup truck getting sorted. And we were, I was hell bent. I was like, I was going to go and catch bulls. And I said to myself, if I can catch two a day, I'm still, you know, that worst case scenario, if I catch two a day, that's the same as my wage. So it'll be okay. And, um, yeah. And then I remember flying up and I'd left, uh, Brisbane in the helicopter and I was getting to Roma. I got through Roma and coming over Longreach and I'm just, I'm sitting up there quite high, sending it, hitting, and I had three places to go and look at. And I was just shitting myself going, you know, I had that moment of, oh, my God, this is, it's all real now. Like, this has to work. Um, it, you know, it's, we've got to make the best of this. And anyway, and it was Bahania was one of the places that I'd had lined up for me to go and inspect and to meet them and do a deal there. And, yeah, that was the place that I first went to and, um, where I've had so many special memories for the last eight years now with the Lanson family there. And um, it was just, it was perfect. There were just animals everywhere, you know, and we got to start their catching. And then at the end of that year, um, we got offered the lease. So, it, yeah, we were very, very lucky in the situation and everything sort of fell into place, you know. We um great team of fellas to work with. You know, we had a bloody good helicopter. We had some pretty good gear, but we had very little money. Yeah, so it, it was really, really hard to, you know, to get that first shipment of buffalo out and then wait to get paid, you know, and that was back when you sometimes it would take them 21 days to a month before you got the money in your bank account and, you know, but, 
yet all the trucks needed paid and the hay needed paid and av gas and that. So it was it was pretty daunting. And yeah, but it worked and we slowly just grew from there, Steph. And um and then we ventured out and through the Lanson family, they had other family that they knew of that we could go and catch there. And then we just sort of we were like a I suppose traveling gypsies then. We just went to all different places and caught and um yeah, very lucky and even, you know, through to last year when I get to got to go and catch over in WA, you know, right in the back of that sort of Louisa Downs country and so yeah it's been it's been a great experience and bull catching has taken us to a lot of different places and we've met a lot of really good people and yeah so it's it's been a lot of fun eh did it ever cross your mind that you might not find like I know you said you had three places lined up to look at but i guess it's kind of chicken or egg do you line up a place first and then get your helicopter and all your gear sorted or do you get all your gear sorted and then get a place lined well, it's up about because, committing to it yeah so say, if you're, you're going to do it yeah you're going to do it cuz you're pretty yeah. leveraged but at the end of the day, you don't necessarily have control over whether or not someone's going to let you because you yep, know you correct. can't. There's no free country, um, so it's not like you can just go bull catching anywhere. You've got to yep. every piece of land is connected back to someone in some level of government or freehold or TO or any any kind of ownership. So yeah, you, you, Honestly, that, that Steph, was a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I had I had I had nothing lined up. I mean, nothing in concrete, like I'd taken a gamble. But I thought, oh, well, worst case scenario, I'll go and fly. Uh, you know, I yeah. can, I've still got that skill so I can go and contract fly for someone or I'll make it happen. But that, I was that bloody hell-bent and determined that I was going to make it happen. Nothing was going to stop me. So, um, yeah, and we were just lucky that it, it worked so well with Bohemia and, um, yeah, and I managed to then go and do a lot of catching in Robinson River. Um, that was, you know, I suppose that would be 2016 we were there. 2016, 2017, um, and yeah, there were just a lot of animals around, and I mean, that that was a little different though. Like we ran a lot of panel yards, we were bull catching and running yards, but we'd yeah, and it, and it worked really well, and then that led into other good contracts, and um, yeah, so we were very lucky that we got um we got good country, and we got a head start too because then the market did come right, but I already had a foot in the door, so I was getting a lot of opportunities that other people weren't getting. And, um, yeah, and we formed a great relationship with the families down there. And so it was really good. And the other thing, we, we paid, you know, like we did a deal. It was X amount per animal and, um, it was bloody hard. And sometimes we had no money, but we made sure that they got paid. So, and once they, um, once the landowners are paid, they form a lot more trust in you. So yeah, they're good to have you back, you know. So no, it was, it was a hell of an experience and a lot of fun. Yeah, that's for sure. And the whole time you've been doing this, you had, well, you and Lizzie had two young kids with you. Yep. And you guys, I think we covered off in the last episode, you spent however many years before you got the place we're sitting at now in Adelaide River, living out of a, some kind of trailer. Oh, we had a gooseneck. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so what was it like? Well, we were all together and, um, yeah, what fun. I mean, you know, Lizzie worked extremely hard. Um, you know, whether she was in a bull catcher or driving the truck or whatever. I mean, she always was the first one up. She had breakfast. At the height of it, we had 17 people that we were cooking for on an open fire. And then pilots. And then on top, you know, we got NAH pilots to come down to help us because quite often we're yarding. We're always like having sort of two to three helicopters. You um, say yarding? Yeah, yarding, running paddle yarding running the cattle into panel yards and doing things like that. So instead of like instead of catching instead them. Instead of just arming, you know, bulls, a lot of the time if there were big numbers there, we would run panel oh, yards. So okay. So quite often we'd have a large labor force there and um yeah, it was it was just a hell of a lot of fun and having the kids there with us, like yeah, I remember Lizzie was coming down every second night in the road train to pick up all the bulls that we'd caught from Scrub Bull Flat and um drop off more food and that. And so Liz would drive down and the kids are sitting in between the seats there um, with their school books out, just um, lying down there, colouring in. Or And Liz is doing school of the year while driving the road train and giving them their work. But the kids just went everywhere with us. That was that was all, all they knew early part. And But they did know as well if they hooked in in the morning and got their work done, they were free to come with us in the afternoon. Yeah, but I've had a few funny ones where I'd, land to get avgas and charlie will come running out and i'll go how are you going and he's like good dad all done school's all finished i'm like oh that's the go and he's got his water bottle and his little backpack so he throws it in the back seat and jumps in and then 
we fly away, and then it'll be about 10 minutes later, I get a call on the two-way, and Liz go, have you seen Charlie? I'm like, yeah, he's sitting here with me. And she's like, he's supposed to have an IDL now. Oh, he's supposed to be. <laughs> and I'm like looking at him, and he's like, don't go back, Dad, don't go back. And I'm like, you little bugger. He'd hoodwink me a few times like that. Yeah, they were a lot of fun. And, you know, proper good kids. Yeah, they did it tough. But what an experience for them. And growing up there and, you know, and we had a lot of the, well, the indigenous families had kids too. So, yeah, it was it was just so much fun. And, and the, you know, the skill and the knowledge that those boys have got now is, you know, you know, they can throw a rock and, you know, they watching all their mates throw spears and, you know, stone animals and things like that. You know, they've they've just had a, an amazing upbringing and, you know, and I know they think about it a lot now because they're, they're both in a concrete jungle now. They're, um, Charlie's had his first year at Nudgee College in the boarding house and Blake is a day boy at Nudgee and, yeah, we've got a house in uh, Brisbane now and so Lizzie and I are going backwards and forwards a fair bit and, yeah, Blake will go into the boarding house next year but they're, they are, you know, they're having fun but they're extremely homesick. And they they pine for the territory and the helicopters and catches and their motorbikes and walking cattle and doing all those fun things they used to do. Like life has definitely changed for us, that's for sure. There's so much opportunity for them to to be so what's that word? autonomous and use their initiative. I was blown away last year by I think is is Blake the older one? Uh Charlie. Charlie, sorry, sorry, boys, um, who. Ba- who could show me basically everything about your helicopter, short of probably getting in it and flying away. But, like, I reckon he'd pass his theory test tomorrow. Like, he, you know, mm-hmm. what was he, 11? Like, he's obviously just learnt and asked you so many questions that he's like, this button does that. Yep. And this is that. What's that dial means and blah, blah. And I was just like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Like, well, he's a very lucky little kid and he's always had an interest in flying. Well, they both have. But, I mean, you know, there were some times there where, you know, we, we just had to, the kids had to come with us. So quite often Charlie would be in his car seat in the next to me in the helicopter and, and he's just loved it. And he's got a, he can spot animals. He's so good at doing that. Yeah. And he's just sort of been a part of it. So, I mean, yeah, he's 13 years old. He started his flight training with Nick McManus, who's an instructor in Brisbane. He loves it. And, um, Nick's very impressed with his skill level. And, um, yeah. So, that's sort of a bit of a reward for him too, being at school and being so far away from it. He's able to go to Nick McManus's utility helicopters in Brisbane and he just adores Nick. Yeah. So he can go for a fly if the dual controls and he's slowly working towards it. And, and we've, we've said to him that, you know, I mean, you can get your, you can start your pilot's license, I think from when you're 16 now, but we've said 18, you know, cause I want him to have a, you know, a fair bit of experience and nous about him before he, you know, we let him go in the sky, that's for sure. So um, both kids are working on that and both kids, are, they love aviation and I'm, you know, I'm happy if they want to go that way just as long as they're safe and and that's why we're, you know, we're very lucky that we've got that great instructor down there, Nick McManus, so, um, yeah, keeps an eye on them and looks after them and, and it just breaks it up for them too, you know. They get a little taste of home and helicopters again, yet they're down in the concrete jungle. I had no idea that you could start from that age. I bet there's going to be any kids that listen. I don't know if there's kids that listen to this podcast, but if there's any teens or preteens, I bet a lot of parents are going to be like, why'd you have to say that, Lily? Now we're getting hassled to go to flight training. That is incredible. And, yeah, I can't imagine how hard it would be for them. And, I mean, because any station kid that goes to boarding school or goes away for school, but particularly yours because they're so – I think the way they grew up, you know, kind of like – living in camp and then and doing everything it's almost like how people grew up like 30 40 years ago like say whereas now today there's a lot more mod cons on stations yeah. and whereas you know they they kind of you talk about them or what they're doing it sounds like when people are telling me about their childhood in like the 60s yeah, um not yeah. in a bad way but um you know like and they've got they would have so much opportunity where they have to use their brain and their initiative whereas i feel like at school you don't necessarily like there's so much that is controlled for you and that you can't make decisions and do things like you're kind of caged in a bit so yeah i mean like we're we're so thankful though like for the school of the air and and what they've provided for us and the children has just been amazing you know and you know it's something that i'll definitely always support you know and um we're, we're very lucky having school of the air there allowed lizzie and i to have our children with us on station and um 
definitely very thankful to them. And then, you know, they're so good. And with this technology now, with, you know, good Wi-Fi and that and getting, you know, lessons conducted over the internet, it's pretty cool. And, you know, and the teachers, the teachers we found were, were really nice as well. And, and it was great too when the kids would have like a sports day or something and you see all these little bush kids come in, um, whether it's swimming or athletics. And then, you know, and one thing you notice about them, they're one, they're all so talented. Jeez, there's some talented kids out there. And two, they're all polite and they can hold a conversation with adults. They don't shy or hide from adults or anything. They, they're right there. Like they'll come straight up and shake your hand and ask how you are. And I suppose it's because they've lived in an adult's world most of their time. And quite often on stations, you know, there's not a lot of kids around. And, um, yeah, so. They've had a great grounding and a great start. And then when they move off to boarding school and, you know, I think that was the big thing for Charlie. Well, he, he, he definitely found it a little bit sort of daunting at when he first got to Nudgee. I mean, what was it 1700 children or something there? Jeez. And so it's, um, it was a bit of a shock for him. And, um, yeah, but he's adjusted to it pretty well. And yeah, he's, is it a, he's uh, learned about rules. Is it so. a boys college or a co-ed? Yeah, boys' college. Okay, yeah. well, just wait until we give it a year or two until he goes to some like school mixer where the sister school comes along. Yeah. I'm sure he won't be complaining. <laughs> no, he's he's having a great time, and you know they're playing rugby and getting all the opportunities now, and um, you know doing a lot of fun things. Charlie's rowing as well, so yeah, um, it's it's really exciting to see them grow. But bloody hard though. Like yeah, we've all been together for so long, and then now this is sort of the the life change, but. I'm not doing too bad, though, eh? You reckon the house is pretty clean yeah, and looks yeah. all right, I? I? was wondering. I was like, that's why I kept asking you before as I was coming up with this podcast. I was like, are you sure you don't want anything yeah. from town? Do you need some groceries? Like, are you eating, you know, because it's just you here? Yeah. Um, no, but- I'm definitely going all right and just lucky we've got, like, FaceTime and all those sorts of things so yeah. we can keep in touch with everyone. And, yeah, it's going really good. Yeah. All right. So there's part one of our chat. Part two will be out next week. See you then.